Hello, my name is Goda Ribita and you're listening to Sentient, a new series of podcasts by Enterprise Lithuania, where we will discuss how life sciences improve our living. Indeed, the pursuit of any scientific endeavor is noble, but life sciences are particularly special. They parade so many aspects of our lives, from healthcare to debates about stem cell research and genetic testing. While dramatic scientific progress has been made in recent decades, so much remains unknown. Yet the knowledge we've gathered has opened up a new world, giving us unique ways of solving problems. Sentient will reveal the potential, development and innovative solutions of the Lithuanian life sciences sector. I am very happy to introduce Urtene Nishkita, definitely one of the most prominent Lithuanian neuroscientists. Urte will tell how to make your brain more efficient, how to keep them healthy. She will also elaborate on the new EMBL Institute in Lithuania and why academic and commercial sector partnerships matter. Hello Urte and welcome to Sentient. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, what kind of research do you do? So I'm a biochemist from training. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my degrees, starting from bachelor th- all through PhD, are in biochemistry. Very boring. Uh, but when I was doing my thesis, um, my PhD thesis, I actually moved into the biochemistry of the brain. Mm-hmm. So I kind of qualify myself now as a neuroscientist mm-hmm. because I focus on what is happening in the brain, how do the molecules interact in, in the brain, and how does mm-hmm. the biochemistry there actually mm-hmm. lead to our brain networks uh, as effective as they are. Mm-hmm. And how do you do your studies? How do you conduct them? Do you work with uh, humans or with animals? So we haven't been doing any human research and we are not intending to work with human subjects mm-hmm. in the near future. We do use models. We use either cellular models. Mm-hmm. It means we can take brain cells, different types of brain cells, because we have a variety of them in the brain, and just have them in the dish, modulate them, look into them uh, under the microscope and so on. Uh, we are using tissue samples as well or uh, and so-called primary cells that come directly from living brain, so we use animal models for mm-hmm. that. And we also do some of our research in living animals. For example, when we are interested how different perturbations or different um, issue, developmental issues lead to behavioral deficits. Mm-hmm. So for that, we use animal models and we test their behavior. Uh, you mentioned that you're not intending to start uh, human studies. Uh, why is that? Is it like uh, difficult to get all, the, all, all of the necessary permits or...? Well, y- you kind of need to specialize mm-hmm. somehow. Neuroscience is very, very wide. It starts from single molecules. It starts from biophysics of the brain. And it moves all the way through to the edge where you have this uh, neuropsychology, essentially. So you kind of you need to specialize. And with the background that I had, I kind of specialized in this area, uh, which is cellular biology and tissue biology, and moved a little bit mm-hmm. to animal behavior as well, just because it is necessary for us to confirm that whatever we're seeing uh, also has functional uh, consequences. However, um, working with humans is something very, very different. Uh, you use completely different set of techniques. You use different ways to look into the brain, different ways to assess their function. So we don't really, neither me nor my group, we don't really have the expertise in that. But what we are planning to do, we actually are planning to expand our uh, tissue research into human tissue as well. Uh, That would be post-surgical brain tissue. 
which essentially in, in the hospitals, it just gets trashed. It's, it's not re uh, uh, required so anymore. So it could it be used for science. Exactly. It cannot be used at all for anything useful. Mm -hmm. It's just post-surgical waste. Mm -hmm. However, we've got the approval from Bioethical co Committee, uh, and I have a trainee now in Freiburg in mm -hmm. Germany learning how exactly to deal with the tissues mm -hmm. to keep it alive, and we're hoping to implement that in September in, in Lithuania as well. In September? So soon? Yeah, that, well. that's, that's uh, the plan until the end of the year to have a running platform with human brain tissue as well. Is it difficult to get all of the necessary permits uh, for human studies? But Because I imagine even if it's uh, surgical waste, for example, even if it goes you know, away without any, uh, any help <laughs> for anyone, uh, but it it should be difficult to get that tissue, isn't it? Well, it, it took it took a while. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of it's a pile of paperwork. Uh, however, since we are only using post-surgical waste, that means that the treatment that is um, applied to the patients mm -hmm. it doesn't change. That makes it much easier. So the kind of half of the permit is already <laughs> gone because we are not changing the treatment yeah. at all. Another half is mostly concerned with the informed consent. Because we have to make sure that everybody understands that they are giving, free willingly giving their tissue to, to be used in science. Uh, as well, since we will, we want to look in developing brain as well. So we will be collecting um, the brains after like surgical tissue uh, from children as well. So then both parents mm -hmm. and children have to understand what's happening. And so, and so that, that's an important thing. And, and the next important thing is the um, data protection. Mm -hmm. So we are only we will only be working with anonymized data. All the data will be anonymized by our partners uh, at the at the hospital. So th that again wasn't a big issue, but we had to write about that and we had to consider these things. How will we deal with these mm -hmm. things? Neuroscience is such a gigantic field, fusing so many different scientific disciplines. Could you please explain uh, why your research is important in the big picture? So, you know, uh, neuroscience is a great area of, of research. Since I started working in neuroscience, I've never ever, not a single time, received a question, why are you doing that? And a lot of, a lot of scientists do get that question. Say, okay, so but why is that important? Because mm -hmm. uh, brain, like everything what we do, everything what we feel, everything what we think is the product of our brain. So humans always wanted to understand how the brain works. And with time, we actually understood that a lot of pathologies that we see are also directly related uh, to brain condition. For example, uh, Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. It was first described as a movement disorder because that's what people notice, that mm -hmm. the, it's difficult for the person to move, it has certain tremors and so on. But once people started looking, what is the reason of that movement disorder? We found there's a neuroinflammatory, neurodegenerative mm -hmm. disease. So we need to fix the brain and then everything else will go away. It's the same with uh, multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. for example. And again, we, we do see some movement or sensory issues, but actually it all starts in the brain. And if we can solve that, if we, first we need to understand how the brain works, then we can understand how it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And once we know that, we can try to fix it. Mm -hmm. The next question is maybe something like uh, picking your favorite child, probably. But what for you personally, which of your discoveries of your maybe studies, not discoveries, is the most interesting for you personally? So I think the biggest impact that we did, me and my collaborators did, mm -hmm. was my PhD uh, research, uh, research project, where we actually found that immune cells in the brain 
when they get overly activated, mm -hmm. they just start eating neurons that are viable and mm -hmm. that could survive, that essentially we have immune system that gets rogue mm -hmm. and causes most of the damage. Yeah, damaging well, it's very similar to what so we see with COVID now. You know, okay. It's a problem that our immune system gets overly activated okay. and causes all the symptoms mm -hmm. that might lead to death. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was very interesting. It, it was completely new. It mm -hmm. was very difficult to convince our scientific peers that actually mm -hmm. it is happening in the brain. But once we found it, once mm -hmm. we published it, after like three years of trying, Three years. Three years of trying, yes. Wow. Uh, we had the study. Like, I started my PhD and we already had, uh, the, the PhD student, student at work before me already mm -hmm. had the manuscript. And it took us three years until we published it. Wow. So it, take, it, it takes, takes a while. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a new thing. So everybody was very reluctant. They were saying, mm -hmm. well, is it really... Can it really be like that? Why would we have this happening in our brain mm -hmm. that microglia, like the immune cells of the brain are eating neurons now? What would be the evo evolutionary advantage of that? But once we published that, people started seeing it in a lot of different conditions. They are seeing this in developing brain. They're seeing this in the overall, the newborn neurons in our brain that are not integrated into the network, like through the plasticity they are actually also eliminated, mm -hmm. it seems, through this, we called it phagoptosis, like death through phagocytosis, <laughs> the death through eating. They yeah. essentially are being, being eaten to eliminate any, um, any chance that they actually will start degrading and will cause more damage into the brain. So mm -hmm. normally it is happening in our brain, but in certain conditions, such as Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease or, or Parkinson's disease and so on, it can also contribute to the pathology that we are seeing. So I think this is the biggest impact. Um, but if we think, what is my love child? Yes. <laughs> uh, so now uh, we do really have a very exciting project with one of my PhD students, this project we kind of when we started we said uh, we weren't really sure what we will look into but we essentially looking how chronic inflammation into the maternal body mm -hmm. changes how the fetal brain develops and the offspring brain develops wow. postnatally as mm -hmm. well so it's a very interesting story and we've got very nice collaborations starting with the university mm -hmm. of edinburgh mm -hmm. where they can use very potent mri machines mm -hmm. to look into this teeny tiny mouse brain when mm -hmm. they do the imaging for 16 hours so this is all overnight and uh -huh. you get like a really high resolution so we hope also to get on one hand the developmental profiles between males and females which is very interesting and that's very hot topic now as well understanding yeah. what are the somatic like structural yeah. differences yeah. which are there and also then see so what happens if you have this chronic inflammation mm -hmm. which can be caused by a variety of things mm -hmm. caused because by uh, different diseases mm -hmm. can be caused by obesity and so on so kind of seeing what happens to the offspring brain and uh, and kind of grew, it became very, very big, but it's, it's very exciting for all of us that mm -hmm. are contributing. When should we expect, expect, expect the first results for, from the... Well, so Gantara, she needs to defend in two years and a half, mm -hmm. so by then <laughs> we will definitely have something published. Well, looking <laughs> forward. Uh, personally, to me, neuroscience is one of my favorite uh, topics, of course, because it, it actually uh, combines everything that relates to life, actually, because if, for example, if we don't know anything about our brain, we don't know 
anything about human beings, probably. And I have Google alerts with neuroscientific news, and they there's new uh, article uh, about something from neuroscience every couple of minutes, and it's difficult to keep track of on uh, of uh, neuroscientific news around the world, even if it's your popular science news, right? Translated into human language, so to say. But uh, what uh, would be the most remarkable uh, recent uh, neuroscientific uh, discovery studies? Or so usually it's not a discovery. It's all the yeah. application of the discoveries that have been made a while ago. But I think uh, the neuroscience community was really excited when a couple of weeks ago uh, FDA has approved a new drug for Alzheimer's disease, which hasn't mm -hmm. been approved. And last drug has been approved, I think, 20, almost 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a devastating disease. It has huge socioeconomical bugs. It has a huge uh, effect on uh, life quality and so on, but we don't really have ways to deal with that. And since we have uh, this new drug that might help, it's very, very exciting. It's a... Uh, we will see how well it will stand in the in large population, because, of course, when you do the recent clinical mm -hmm. studies, you have like pre-selected mm -hmm. populations. But I think everybody is watching. And, mm -hmm. and also the technology that they used to develop this drug is very interesting mm -hmm. as well. So essentially, the thinking of the researchers was that if... Uh, some people do get the disease and others don't. So that means those people who do not get the disease, they might have, they should have some kind of protection. Yeah. And they say it could be that they have a special antibodies mm -hmm. that eliminate the deposits mm -hmm. of the peptides in the brain mm -hmm. that cause Alzheimer's disease. Antibodies, so it's something like, like immunity. immune, immune okay. molecules, yeah. So yeah. they took these immune antibodies mm -hmm. from healthy people mm -hmm. that do not get any damage to their mm -hmm. brain. And they actually found that there are antibodies that are recognizing this peptide, this small, mm, small, uh, like a protein, a protein peptide, um, th which is causing the Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease. So they purified it. They made cell lines that are making the, the, these antibodies, and then they introduced it as a drug. And they actually saw that it helps a lot for people who already have the disease to clear the brain and to limit the progression of the disease. So I think this way of thinking that when we're developing a drug, we might actually look not into those people who are sick, but to those that they are healthy, and to ask why they are healthy. That's very important as well. This is an interesting, this just a clinical study, not related to neuroscience, but very similar study just started by um, uh, Santara Clinics, mm -hmm. where they are inviting people who had high-risk contact with COVID-infected mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. and they didn't get the disease. And that's it's very clever to understand mm -hmm. why do not some why some people do not get infected did, and yeah. do not get the disease mm -hmm. and compare them to those that they do and maybe we will find some molecular markers that can help us a lot to screen people and to know which of them will need medical help and maybe uh, give them that help a little and bit potentially earlier. develop uh, some kind of new medicine that would help to build immunity. Exactly, exactly. Something so and, and maybe you, you know maybe you have like sixty percent of people who don't really need to be taken care of because mm -hmm. they have their s genetic background mm -hmm. allows them to deal with this virus with, mm -hmm. uh, with, no, with no big issues. Because I did he hear quite a few stories of people who said, well, I was in contact with a yeah. person who was sick and I never felt sick. So it's very interesting to say, okay, so what is there to recognize, you know, understanding why, do people, why some people do not get sick. We might understand better what is the mechanism of the disease. Well, they are very lucky if, uh, <laughs> if they are lucky enough not to get COVID-19. Yeah. And what, would, uh, what other discoveries would you uh, find remarkable? So uh, I think very interesting developments. We, ha we are not 
there yet, but very interesting developments are being done by Neuralink. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very skeptical three years ago now when they just started because what they said they will achieve wasn't really mm -hmm. feasible neither at that time nor now. But they are kind of narrowed down to what they're doing to technological development. And this technological development mm -hmm. of neuroimplants is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And I think that will make a breakthrough in neuroscience mm -hmm. as well. Uh, if we look at the neuroprosthesis overall, uh, we can now recover la uh, language, movement, sight, hearing using neuroprosthesis. Mm -hmm. But the problem is only the cochlear implants that are used to recover mm -hmm. hearing are allowed to be implanted for a longer period of time. All mm -hmm. other implants are allowed to be implanted for up to six months, I think, maybe mm -hmm. two Why years at that? maximum. Because they do cause uh, inflammation mm -hmm. in the brain, and then the inflammation causes more damage mm -hmm. than you get the benefit. Mm -hmm. So uh, most of this research is done in the United States. Uh, so FDA there approves for how long you can use. So six months is like a gold standard. So we, we have to understand that we can take a person, and that research has been done before. You take a person that hasn't been seeing for some reason for a very long time. So you do implant the... Uh, their visual cortex and collect, collect that with the goggles with the now, you know, uh, machine learning helps a lot actually to process the, uh, the, to process the uh, sight into the, into the electrical signals and you can actually stimulate the brain with these electrical signals and the person starts to see. And then six months passes. That sounds and like something it. from a science fiction movie. Yeah, but it, it does work. But the problem is we do need to have uh, neuro implants that would last for 10, 20 years. Because only then they will be approved for the wider use in clinic. So what Neuralink is doing, they actually are developing very flexible implants, uh, having the same consistency, so to say, as the brain, in a way. So the brain uh, immune system doesn't see them. Because uh, the brain, uh, Im brain immunity reacts a lot into the stiffness of, of the surface. And we, we do have a tiny project on that as well, just by looking how the stiffness changes the function of immune cells. So if you have a stiff implant, and, and you know, the standard implants are just metal rods, mm -hmm. the immune system reacts a lot, you have a scar forming and so on, and it doesn't last. So what they do, they're trying to make invisible implants that essentially would work really effectively, but the brain doesn't know that they are mm -hmm. there, and that means it would ignore it mm -hmm. for long enough so that you so can no keep inflammation. Those yes, yeah. no inflammation, no scar formation, no rejection in a way as for any mm -hmm. other implant. And then you can keep it in the, in the brain for a longer period of time, and the function. You know, we can recover the function already. It's just how can we transmit that function for long enough into mm -hmm. into the brain. So I really believe, you know, that's my hope, but I think in five or ten years, this will be the research that will change the neuroprosthesis field overall. Now going back to Lithuanian life sciences and especially regarding uh, neuroscience, uh, what are the most um, important uh, stu Lithuanian neuroscientific studies globally, recent maybe? Because so many things are happening uh, at the, for example, Lithuanian Life Sciences Center and so on. So many scientists working from, from different fields. So we do have a different lines of mm -hmm. research. Uh, we do have Neuroscience Institute in Konas, mm -hmm. In, in the University of Health Sciences. Mm -hmm. So they uh, essentially focus on brain diseases, of course, mm -hmm. the University of Health Sciences. So they do a lot of international studies with international mm -hmm. collaborations working on neurodegeneration, looking at the mechanisms mm -hmm. of Alzheimer's disease, trying to understand what are the, the key players, mm -hmm. uh, and then looking maybe we can 
use those key players as drug targets and so on. So th that's a very important part of research. Uh, another part of research that is being uh, done at the at Vilnius University at Life Sciences Center is uh, related to human studies. Uh, we do have groups that are investigating, do, that are doing uh, brain imaging and investigating different conditions. For example, looking for the markers in in the brain activity for for certain uh, for schizophrenia, for example. So, can you just look into the activity and can diagnose it very very clearly? Uh, there is a group that is uh, working on very exciting project. Uh, it's it's a joint project again in the co international collaboration with different centers looking at the female brain. You know, we know so much about male brain just because, you know, male has been a standard for research for all these thousands of years. Why? We have Is it because of, uh, like, sexist reasons or...? Well, overall, if you, if you look in any biomedical research, mm -hmm. uh, male is still the reference sex. White male, probably. White male, yeah, quite, quite usually. Uh, we, uh, when I was doing my postdoc in Italy, we had huge discussion with, with mm -hmm. a, our group leader, me, me and some other like, PhD students and postdocs, uh, discussing the fact that if you only find the phenotype in females, mm -hmm. but do not find it in males, uh, can you still follow that? Because mm -hmm. we were saying, yes, of course, why not? Uh, but the position at that time, it has changed. You know, these past five years mm -hmm. changed a lot, was that, you know, if you don't see it in male, it's just something sex-related, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not interesting at all. But we are seeing that actually there are differences uh, at the ba basic level. And, um, and this is important trying to look at, uh, into the function, uh, in particular since females go through the uh, cyclic uh, effect of hormones, mm -hmm. for example, how does that change the brain? And we can, looking at certain areas of the brain, you can see them physically changing mm -hmm. depending on the, uh, on the time of the cycle. And Lithuanian scientists collaborate. Yeah, on collaborate this. and work on that, and actually look how the mm -hmm. natural cycle changes mm -hmm. the brain uh, executive functions. Look how do these executive functions change uh, when um, the woman is on contraceptives, mm -hmm. for example? Because it's the highly un. Um, unstudied area, mm -hmm. essentially. We do not have that much of the research, and we have so many women actually mm -hmm. using these hormones. And since we know that uh, sex hormones actually mm -hmm. change how the brain works, it, it's very important, actually, to understand mm -hmm. how does it change if, if you interfere with mm -hmm. this hormonal system. So this is also a very big uh, collaboration, and, and it's exciting to have it in Williams University. Mm -hmm. Now, since we established that brain is important, <laughs> of course, uh, you talk publicly, you often talk about how to make your brain more efficient and how to keep your brain healthy and so on. What can we do in order to keep our brains healthy? I mean, uh, I'm not talking about uh, genetic uh, preconditions and so mm. on, but what is up to us? So first thing is that our brain is very similar to our mm -hmm. muscle. We use it, it gets stronger, we stop using it, 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 it weakens. weakens yeah. mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, it is like that. And we do have so many gadgets now to avoid uh, using our brain. Mm -hmm. So I said it's kind of, I, I like to draw a parallel, you know, when in uh, 100 years ago, when we moved from the physical work in the fields mm -hmm. to the uh, very non-challenging, the physically non-challenging mm -hmm. work in the offices, uh, we quite quickly realized that's not very good for our body. And we started yeah. going to the gyms mm -hmm. or uh, kind of uh, planning our physical activities and so on. Not necessarily in the gym, but outside and so on. Um, it's a very similar thing, I think, is happening to our brain. 
uh, we do, we, we are lazy, that's fine. Uh, so we, l we made a lot of <laughs> gadgets uh, to avoid using our brain because mm. it's, you know, it's very, it's yeah. short, you know, brain is very energetically inefficient, mm. you know, it uses so much energy, mm. you know, your iPhone uses less of that. So as I'm as using <laughs> a tablet, yeah, a tablet for this see? conversation yeah. in order not to forget questions. Exactly. <laughs> So, but we, what, what has been shown is that when you stop using a certain area of the brain, mm -hmm. for example, the area required f for us to orient mm -hmm. around, you know, we don't use maps, mm -hmm. we don't have the maps in our brain, mm -hmm. we just use our pocket computer, you know, for that. Um, our areas of the brain that are responsible for, for this type of memory, for this memory of uh, spacious memory, it diminishes mm -hmm. and it gets smaller and we essentially mm -hmm. lose that function. So first of all, if you want to have effective working brain, we need to use it. So that I d I'm not a reaction, uh, reactionist saying that you know, we have to stop using all the gadgets. Yeah. Of course, it makes our life easier. But as we found ways to schedule in physical work in mm -hmm. our day, we have to think of the ways to train our brain as well. You know, to keep that in mind. Another very important thing, unfortunately, uh, is uh, sports. You know, sports is required for our exercise. Exercise, yeah. yeah. Physical exercise is required for our brain to work properly. You know, mm. Greeks have said that uh, since <laughs> like how many thousand years ago, but th th it is true. Uh, it works in uh, one mechanism is very simple. You know, when we have our uh, we do aerobic exercise, mm -hmm. our Blood is pumped better throughout mm. our uh, throughout our and body. Brains and brains need blood, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and brains use about twenty percent of energy that our body uses, mm -hmm. and all that energy comes within mm -hmm. blood. So it helps that way. And also, what has been shown is that when we uh, are doing exercise, mm -hmm. actually, new neurons mm -hmm. are born much more efficiently in our brain. So that means if we try to study something. And we, after the period of studying, we go and do some exercise. We remember what we studied better. And wow. ha that has been shown with very different ages. Mm -hmm. you know, it has been shown with uh, primary school children. It has been shown with middle-aged uh, people. It has mm -hmm. been shown with senior people as well. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very efficient. And essentially, it is like exercise helps our brain to function. So if you want uh, to remember something important, if you need to remember something important, it's best you do some exercise so it's, it's better. After learning yeah. that. After yeah. learning that. Yeah. So you do, like, you do the studying, <laughs> not just exercise. You do the studying. <laughs> and then you go and do some exercise. Uh, and the third thing, which is, uh, I think is very, very relevant to, to what we have now overall, so to our lifestyle, mm -hmm. is that we learned to live in the flow of information. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, there's a lot of information, yeah. isn't it? Every uh, day. And we kind of, we allow it to access us mm -hmm. all the time, you know. We always get notification, it always beeps, yeah. it always, you do get, you know, emails, messages, notifications, and so on. And essentially, it seems like we are multitasking. It seems mm -hmm. like we're doing a lot of things at the same time. But for what we know from looking at how our brain works, essentially, our brain is not capable of multitasking. Mm -hmm. If we are talking about higher functions, we're not talking about, you know, eating and walking. Yeah. Of course, we can do that. Um, but essentially, if we want to use our brain efficiently, we need to focus and we, ha we need to have the undivided attention. And it's difficult, difficult to do nowadays. You have to switch things off, essentially. Because yeah. if you, let's say, you say, oh, I'll just write a manuscript now, you know, that's what I do uh, mm -hmm. during my day. I write a manuscript. If I have my um, 
email application running in the background and it pops me up the notifications. Each time I see that, I lose the focus. Mm-hmm. So once I come back to writing, I need to refocus and regain the attention. And, and that takes up to 10 minutes. Energy, yeah. And that takes up to 10 minutes. So essentially, if you're focused and you lose that focus, you, don't get, you need 10 minutes to focus again. So uh, the best way to use your brain efficiently when you need mm-hmm. to do that because a lot mm. of, you know, during, mm. during the day we might not need that. But once you need to do that, switch everything off. The world will not go down. Don't burn <laughs> No, no, the world will not burn down, you know, in one hour when you will focus on, on one task that you want to, uh, to focus on mm-hmm. and just spend that time. So essentially mm-hmm. it, it has been shown that it takes about 10 minutes to, foc- to gain the maximal efficiency. Mm-hmm. And also then you can sustain it for like 40, 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, with this academic hour, mm-hmm. you know, when you have in school, it's, it's very reasonable because mm-hmm. then after that, you need to have a break just because your brain yeah. uh, gets, gets tired you, or change the way you're working and so, so on. So when you're working hard, you should turn off your phone and your email notifications, everything, just focus on the yeah. task you need to do. And that, this is the most efficient way to do. Uh, the most efficient and kind of difficult nowadays yes. as well. Yes, because we're used to that. We, we get anxious, actually. Yeah. Because we used to be in, the, in, in this flow we of information. We have this fear of missing out exactly. something important yeah. but uh, we do not miss much you know I, I had this uh, I had this I don't have it anymore uh, but for a year um, I usually have it in spring it's easier to organize that mm-hmm. uh, that way so in spring what I have now like two springs now in a row is that my Tuesdays are for writing mm-hmm. everybody knows that the lab knows that they still can call me you know I will mm-hmm. pick up but we're all I switch off the email mm-hmm. I don't look any notifications I don't really allow mm, uh, notifications to come to, to pop to my uh, phone, phone. No. Oh, wow. <laughs> if I'm interested I, I can go and seek that information mm-hmm. it's all, always there you know it, n- it, it doesn't disappear but I kind of I li- I try to mm-hmm. limit that but oh, well, I switch everything off and I sit and write it's and very efficient focus, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Vilnius University Life Sciences uh, Center and EMBL Institute uh, signed a framework agreement. Uh, Could you elaborate uh, why this agreement is important and what does it bring to Lithuania? So, uh, EMBL, European Molecular Biology Laboratory, it's not a single laboratory, it's a huge institute Mm -hmm. spread through five sites throughout Mm -hmm. Europe which is the major uh, life sciences institute in Europe, the single one which can actually compete against uh, the universities in the United States. (laughs) So it's it's big enough actually to uh, looking at the number of Mm -hmm. publications and so on. So it's it's like a flagship institute. Mm -hmm. It has been established 30, more than 30 years ago now. Uh, And uh, it's, it's, Lithuania has kind of missed out for a, lo- a long time and uh, I'm very happy that a couple of years ago we actually joined mm-hmm. this laboratory, meaning that all our life science researchers have access to the facilities So EMBL there. is something like a European Space Agency? Yes, CERN, exactly. But Just for, for life, life sciences. sciences. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so it's that level, intergovernmental institutions. Okay. So essentially it is funded by all member countries. Mm-hmm. It's not Europe anymore. We do have associated countries such as uh, Australia and Argentina and so, so on. it's global. It, it, it's becoming very global. Mm-hmm. So the main sites, of, uh, there are main five main sites in Germany, uh, UK, France and Italy. But they also have so-called partnership institutes. Mm-hmm. And these partnership institutes are pr- spread out throughout Europe. Uh, a recent one, again, a couple of years ago, there was one established in Poland, for example. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have anything like that in Baltic countries. And I think it's a huge achievement mm-hmm. 
to Lithuania, mm-hmm. uh, and of course to Vilnius University and Life Sciences Center, that we became the partnership institute mm-hmm. there, which means that we are seeing we are seen as being on par on the level of research that has that is being done in Lithuania, and of course we becoming like a reference center here in uh, here in Baltic countries, and, and that's very very exciting. So, um, of course. Uh, Hats down, it all goes to Virginia Shikshnis because his. Uh, he will be leading the EMBL. He will be leading he, okay. this unit, mm-hmm. and also his uh, d- discovery of this CRISPR-Cas system mm-hmm. was the one we kind of. Uh, the, this partnership institute is built around this CRISPR-Cas mm-hmm. idea. So essentially, starting from looking for new systems, you know, there will be groups looking for new systems, you know, mm-hmm. new enzymes that mm-hmm. are do, have the same activity for genome modification, then moving to the ways of how they work, what is their structure, mm-hmm. how can we pack it and bring it to cell, cells and find out how we can apply it to change the neurofunction, that's where I'm coming. We will be kind of working around this CRISPR-Cas9 as a flagship institute of CRISPR, actually bring in, in Europe, because mm-hmm. we do have some similar institutes mm-hmm. in the United States, actually trying to bring CRISPR, uh, trying to um, employ CRISPR-Cas mm-hmm. and actually bring the field forward. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, a little bit uh, that you will be working at the EMBL. What is your role there? So I'm one of the six group leaders that have been selected in the mm-hmm. international um, international selection selection process so uh, we we do get a a starting budget and and we have like we have five years Mm -hmm. to show what can we do with that, you know, and, and, and try to achieve something. Um, and, of course, uh, there's very high expectations mm-hmm. for patenting things if, if there's something, you know, the dis- discoveries that can be applied uh, in the future and also uh, using this core funding it as a starter to apply for international funding and to bring international funding as well. Um, and, and also the institute will be organized, all the partnership institutes are organized in this uh, EMBL style. We essentially have five plus four contracts, mm-hmm. so-called. It means that you're working for five years. You might get extended by four mm-hmm. if, if they see that it's useful. But that is it. And mm-hmm. in all the EMBL institutes, nine years is maximum for what you can get. Mm-hmm. Then you need to go somewhere else and bring that mm-hmm. knowledge there. So kind of it's built for young people mm-hmm. to come and to establish, establish their research line, to mm-hmm. gain the uh, expertise that they need as young mm-hmm. group leaders, and then move forward, move to, you know, to other Lithuanian institutes uh, throughout Europe or to the States. It doesn't really matter. So Actually a very important milestone uh, exactly. to the Lithuanian life sciences sector. What about life sciences and private and commercial sector? Do you s- see enough collaboration here or do you have any like success stories in mind? Well, we, you know, uh, I do not have any such a success story that we could show uh, ourselves, but I am being approached quite often, you know, by different companies that Mm -hmm. actually would be interested in uh, in doing research together. Uh, the, the, The next question always is the funding and, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, We do have some collaborations that are not being externally funded. Uh, The one that is very interesting is with TSEIS, where they are developing new tools for image uh, image analysis based on machine learning. So essentially, they are just developing the machine learning part, but they need to have scientific objects to look at. So what we do, we we are providing these images that are interesting for us and would be interesting for other neuroscientists as well, trying to make uh, uh, exemplary tools 
that you know this platform can be used. Mm-hmm. So we do not have results quite yet. We have, but we have been working on this for more than a year now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, for example, my student has gone there, you know, to, mm-hmm. to learn to to see how they're working, and, and we do have regular meetings as well. So it, it's kind of a lot active of collaboration, a lot of perspective, and you know, since we are quite a young group just starting, so I, I see it will develop into something in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Urta. As always, it's so interesting to listen to you, and you are a scientist of many talents and many. And so you have so much knowledge and uh, probably a couple of things uh, I've taken from this conversation is that we need to keep our brains healthy. A lot of things depend on us and probably regarding the EMBL Institute, uh, we are looking forward what Lithuanian scientists will bring. Uh, Thank you, Urta, again for coming. Thank you. The podcast is brought to you by Life Sciences Baltic, the largest international life sciences forum in the Baltic countries, organized by Enterprise Lithuania, funded by the European Union Structural Funds. While presenting the potential of the Lithuanian life sciences sector, the forum provides different digital experiences for life sciences companies, startups and academia. Join us on September 20-24 and turn new connections into meaningful projects. We are not just the stuff that dreams are made on, we are the stuff that DNA is made on. Life science is simply the basis of our body and brain function, so it should be important to us if we want to better know ourselves. Tune in next time for more on Sentient by Enterprise Lithuania.